Hello, 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 and welcome to Media Voices. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. This episode is the latest in our series of deep dives looking at the key media moments that have shaped the industry over the past 12 months. You can go back to listen to the episodes on subscriptions, broadcast newsletters, and much more, but make sure you do that after listening to this one, which is all about trust. And we're bringing in a media expert for each episode, and this week we're joined by Martha Williams, who is CEO of World News Media Network. Martha, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about World News Media Network? Yeah, so we're um, we're a research and events company, but we're a not-for-profit. So we serve the news media and magazine media industries, and we focus mostly on digital media and data and AI-driven media. Perfect. Well, that's obviously very pertinent to the discussion today. Um, even though it is about trust, which is fundamental, and there's almost no good news looking through this uh, looking through this this document that we have here, we're going to try and keep it light, even though we live in an actual nightmare. But the topics that we're discussing this season will all be featured in our annual Media Moments 2022 report, which is released on November 30th. You can pre-register to receive that report as soon as it goes live over at voices.media forward slash MM22. You can also check out our latest conversations episode, also pertinent to today's discussion, where we spoke to Reuters all about their work in the run-up to the midterms, what they're doing with data visualizations, and how ultimately that engenders trust among audiences. First though, this season and the Media Moments 2022 report wouldn't be possible without the support of us sponsor's pool. That's P-triple-O-L. They've actually recently launched their own B2B media brand named The Audiences, which shares expert content to support digital publishing and brand publishing professionals in better engaging, converting and retaining their audiences. Uh, You can find The Audiences over at theaudiences.com or more about pool over at P-triple-O-L.tech. I want to begin this episode on trust by sharing a piece of news with you. So one of the things that I saw today is that our king, King Charles, has his shoelaces ironed every single morning. Now, I saw that from reputable news site Jezebel. I implicitly trust that because they have been good at reporting in the past. But had I read that somewhere else, I might have thought that was total b****. So, Martha, building on that, I suppose, what are some of the biggest overarching trends and moments you've seen this year regarding trust in the news media? Yeah, I don't know if I can top that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I do think that uh, there's huge trends that we saw, you know, now for the last many years that really focus on um, misinformation, disinformation, um, just fake news in general. And somehow, you know, I don't want to say the legitimate news media, but the the traditional news media, including digital media, um, really gets lumped in with those that are the perpetrators of those um, horrible acts of, of information that are, you know, flooding you know, flooding the websites. Um, and I think, uh, you know, my main message about that is, is that we've have to find, find a way to distance ourselves and, and, um, I would say differentiate ourselves from those that perpetrate that kind of, of information that is consistently, uh, fake. Absolutely. That disinformation as a business is just the bane of the, as you mentioned, kind of those more traditional news outlets existence. Because as we saw earlier this week, not to date the episode, our other new king, Elon Musk, uh, shared (laughs) misinformation on Twitter, which he then had to then walk back. Well, now that you mention Elon Musk, really, (laughs) I think that there is one really important thing um, to, to consider for the future, because I think that you know, looking at the Reuters Institute trust report, not not the, the the digital report. Yes, there was trust covered on that one, 
But there was a whole other huge report that they did on trust that's absolutely gold standard. And everybody should take a look at it because it really shows us and reflects on how people are receiving this information and how they process it and how they compartmentalize like who who's doing what. And in some cases, news consumers don't differentiate. So we have to make an effort to differentiate ourselves once again, just to, to beat the drum on that. But speaking of AI and data, this is something that we have to mine very carefully for the future. So my last report was about um, was was about third party data and first party data and the importance of media companies owning their own first party data on their consumers. Mm-hmm. Why? For just this very reason that those those purveyors of third party data, the platforms. Um, aren't the trustworthy parties necessarily, or for sure. I, I want I want to be kind, but we all know that the third-party data providers don't really care about what is done with the content and what is done with trustworthy uh, content whatsoever, or or even maintaining uh, the data of of the people who who uh, consume that content. That's why we must differentiate ourselves and 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 uh, focus on when we collect the first party data on our users, we have to be the trustworthy guardians. And I mean, guardians of that Mm. information. And if we don't, we are going to have mud on our face, kind of like Thomson Reuters did this week when they accidentally um, let go of three terabytes of data, personal data about people. That's so much. Um, it's, It's incredible. Um, and, and also, you know, even though they're a B2B uh, purveyor of, of content, they are from a huge media uh, conglomerate. So, uh, you know, it's really important to note that there is nothing more important than maintaining uh, security over that data when you care so much about your consumer. Mm, absolutely. We, well, we'll definitely talk about that. I think potentially then what we should do at this point is go through some of the headlines that caught our eye over the course of the year to put what you just said into context there, Martha. So, Peter, obviously the year got off to a fantastic start. Uh, <laughs> why don't you tell us what the Edelman Trust Survey said about how the public sees journalists as a group? Uh, the numbers on us just keep getting better, don't they? Uh, they're saying that almost seven in 10 people worry. <laughs> that, that's just such a horrible word, but they worry that they're being lied to. It's not just, oh, I don't quite trust, or maybe this isn't right. It's like they worry that they're being lied to by journalists. It also implies, I think, some kind of motivation that people are lying for a reason, which is off. Um, so that's one thing. <laughs> and, and just, you know, to deepen that, the 70, almost 70% of people globally that say that, that they're saying that people are purposely trying to mislead them, as I said, for this, this exaggeration and basically just make it, you know, they've got an agenda and, and that's up eight points, eight percentage points on the last time Edelman did this a year ago. So it's just getting worse. I honestly would have thought that it was uh, the news cycles of a couple of years ago that would have almost peaked that, you know, when we saw some of the really polarized stuff. When I was putting the notes together for this, it, it was actually really depressing, just the fact that all this stuff has got so much worse because it's, I don't think it did peak. It felt like it start, it was the top of just this huge sort of downward whirlpool. 
that I, don't, I genuinely don't know where this ends. There was a really good quote in this um, Edelman report when, when this came out that said, um, like, it's a vicious cycle of distrust that is basically threatening societal stability. Uh, they called it a death grip where media is chasing <laughs> clicks, government is chasing votes, and it feeds this cycle of disinformation and division and exploits it for commercial and political gain. That has got significantly worse since 2016 when sort of fake news and that sort of thing cropped up. And I, I don't know how we get out of it. I mean, in the UK, this year has been absolutely bananas between sort of government and news and, and all this uh, stuff going uh, on. But to what extent do you think the public does see it as this almost undifferentiated whole of the mass media? And, you know, what has that done to trust? Yeah, I, I think that we do need to to distance ourselves. Um, and I think that we need to do it in a holistic way in the industry. Not one publisher can do it at a time. But if you do point out some of the media companies that have distanced themselves from the platforms that in Europe, that would include uh, uh, actual Springer and uh, and Shibstead, uh, where they've basically divorced themselves from from some of the platforms. Um, it's important to note that their their ratings and their um, let's say uh, engagement with their users has gone up. Let me give you an example of how um, not only have they they distanced themselves from the platforms in those companies and tried to do the kind of functions that platforms might do, um, you know, provide lots of services and that sort of thing. But what they've also done is they have really tried to be the end all be all for their customers um, and they have provided lots of avenues to show that they are trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, um, well, let's just focus on Shipstead for one. Shipstead uh, has a very focused privacy uh, department. They have mm-hmm. seven or eight lawyers now that do nothing but help the company enforce GDPR. Why? Because they have, they have to enforce <laughs> GDPR, but also... They have they they find it necessary to engender trust with their users and tell them how much they care about the privacy of their data, mm. and this is really an important active thing that they're doing to show that they care about their users. This is something that platforms do not do because they don't care. I should mention that RTL does the same thing. Mm. They make each and every user's data fully accessible in their privacy center. And um, and it's seamless and it's even promoted uh, to say, here's what you can do if you if you want to check out your uh, pri- private information. And if you don't like it, you can remove it. Esther, you've always banged the drum on news avoidance. The, you the mean she's avoided this. the news? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've advocated for news avoidance. But what, what's been some of the stats around that this year? I'm a bit better than I was uh, when this report first came out. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, the Reuters. We've mentioned the Reuters report um, and the yeah the reports they'd already. But when their when their digital news report dropped in June, that was a, their headline finding was about the extent to which news avoidance had gone up. Um, it was a huge issue. and It was just getting worse and worse. Um, I think in the UK, it was ha- almost half of British people, 46%, actively avoid reading the news as a result of fatigue at excessive COVID and political coverage and just this general sort of drop in trust. And, and their point was that it, it all it all links together. You tend to kind of see this link between people who are avoiding the news, who then end up with a sort of mistrust of it, or they don't quite trust it, so they avoid it. And, and it is this cycle. Um, 
26% of those in the US trust the news. That's a that's one in four. Like, that is low. Um, and actually, the report said that the most common factor listed for news avoidance was that journalists have basically given too much coverage to politics and COVID, which almost half of the respondents shared. Um, and actually, it's something we, we've spoken on the podcast quite a bit about this this year, but it does... It does feel like there's been an awful lot of just constant negative news. Like I think the the word of the year was this sort of perma crisis. Now that we just <laughs> we're just lurching from crisis to crisis, and it's really difficult sometimes to pick out how much of that is the media. Obviously, I'm part of me. I, I mean this in a nice way, and I don't. This sounds like conspiracy theorists, but how much of this is the media sort of constantly seeking that next big thing for the clicks, for the traffic, for the revenue, and how much of it is the fact that actually it's been a pretty crap year mm. okay solve that well, it's definitely been a crap year you can't argue Ooh, yeah. that it's been a, it's actually been a crap half a decade see here's the thing but where do you get that that balance people saying that there's too, been too much coverage of politics and covid if a house was on fire and people were telling us <laughs> to stay the fuck away from this house because it was burning would i then go no you're talking about the flames too but, much okay but the problem is some people w- don't acknowledge that the house is on fire. Some people just say that's really effective heating. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that was the arguments that Trump was making. That's the argument that the Brexit crew was making. You, you even getting that around, well, you got it around COVID, but you're even getting it around the Ukraine war. There's no such thing as a as a consensus in that sense anymore. And I think that's part of the problem. Okay, there was actually a study out about this a couple of weeks ago, which was really interesting to read because it's the first time I've kind of actually seen it charted. So um, a company called PLOS One um, actually charted how negative headlines have grown over the past two decades. Um, so they found that headlines denoting anger have increased 104%, fear have grown 150%, disgust 29%, and sadness 54%. <laughs> And, and they pinpointed exactly the thing that, that it's these sort of negative, quite emotionally arousing headlines that attract more clicks and attention than positive or neutral headlines. Like it's it's what I suppose it's what people want to read, but people end up sort of being drawn to that and then sucked into that, and then they just need a break. You know, I think that in in a way, the internet is uh, is promoting something that we've done here in the states for a very long time, and it hasn't ended well, and that is that that um, the more salacious, the more houses on fire kind of news, the more you're going to drive traffic, the more it's going to be elevated, the more it's going to be seen. Our rating system for TV, not not for for newspapers and magazines, but for TV has always been about ratings. And what that's driven is what we call the Jerry Springer phenomenon. I don't know if you know who Jerry Springer was, but basically yeah. he had, he had one of too familiar with Jerry Springer, yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> it's just like watching a train wreck. And everybody wants to watch a train wreck, and that's a train wreck. And it gets huge ratings. And now that's what news has become. So it wasn't always that way. News, even on TV news, used to be kind of a, like a... A, a faithful experience for Americans, just like it is for, you know, was and is for, for, you know, British people and, and beyond. Now it is a polarizing experience. So you go to Fox news, you get somebody like Tucker Carlson, who basically says the house is on fire, even though it's not, but he makes sure that he imparts to his faithful audience that believes every single word he says 
that the house is on fire and and all he spews all kinds of conspiracy theories and he has one of the biggest if not the biggest talk show on uh TV today which is really really scary but that's because he pushes the envelope every single time about how horrible something can be and therefore he gets raised and guess what he's a very rich man because of it this comes straight back to Alex Jones and the fact yes. that he built a like what was it millions and millions if not billion dollar business yeah. off this misinformation and hate and you know right. the what he put some of those families through yeah. and he's got, he's got he's got this huge huge oh, fine he's got to pay there's almost no consequences like, like how well, do you at stop the risk, at the risk of being really boring that goes straight back to the platforms mm. that goes back to their their business model their business model is is attention and and outrage you know as martha says outrage drives attention they make shitloads of money because alex jones is on their platform saying outrageous things yeah in fact, Peter, you learned about Rumble this week, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, to my to my dismay. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, saw. I mean, so Russell Brand's a, a, a comedian in UK. I've never particularly liked him. Some people liked him. He was always kind of just the right side of offensive. Um, I haven't heard anything about him for quite a while. Uh, and then I saw this this post on Twitter saying that this woman was really worried that her son was watching Russell Brand videos. And I thought, what? That that doesn't yeah. sound right. And I went and checked checked this out. And he's just gone pure tinfoil hat. It's just pure conspiracy stuff. I'm not questioning his motivations, but I'm sure money's not... <laughs> money's yeah, just not low on the list. But it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it speaks to the fact that news probably should be differentiated from just generic content. Yeah, definitely. And by yoking it to the kind of the attention metrics which dominate content online... <laughs> we have fallen prey to a lot of the same things. Uh, well, I, I, I do think that this is, is something that will continue. And I think that we do have to change the model of, as you say, rewarding this um, sort of uh, salacious and over-the-top kind of, of content with um, content that is is targeted to you personally. So this is what data and AI will allow us to do and already allows us to do, to target content to it, individuals. It, it, it can create a bubble, but many people have a wide variety of interests. And once that uh, once media companies pick up, on, once they have enough first-party data, um, they're able to pick up on what it is you're interested in, and then they'll suggest to you what you want. And this is a much more, um, let's say, normal and appropriate way to receive information. And also, it's in an, it, it engenders trust. Because, hey, wait a minute, you're giving me the sport that I want. You're giving me the politics stuff that I want. Um, you're, you're pushing the envelope by giving me a little bit more stuff that might be around the periphery that I might be interested in as well. So I'm not staying in my bubble. And, um, and, I, and so I, I'm, I'm satisfied because you, you understand me. Mm. You have a little bit of data about me. You understand me. You're giving. And therefore, I'm, I'm satisfied. Whereas the, the other model is random information that is is out there uh that is not trustworthy and and that 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 kind of stuff is is basically turning people off one of the things that worries me about that is that it places responsibility with the publishers that's exactly what i was gonna say yeah to not be what chris described as bad actors and and most most publishers most responsible publishers you know from whatever 
you might not like the New York Times or the Guardian or the or the FT or or the the Times point of view, but largely speaking, they follow they follow journalistic norms. But then you've got things like Fox News or the Daily Mail, and they absolutely don't. And if they, you know, the, it's maybe a weird word to use in the context of media, but did they end up radicalizing that first party data? You know, and that's actually what Fox News does anyway, right? Yes. Or, or the Daily Mail or the Express in the UK. They just keep pushing this agenda because they know it, it, it gets attention. And if that's the only thing you're seeing because the publisher is that's all they're feeding you and you happen to have an allegiance to fox news or or the daily mail and you know let's face it fox news and the daily mail aren't the worst of it there's some mm. worse net, networks than, than 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 fox news oan or uh, what's the other one uh newsmax yeah infowars Info yeah all well, that yeah. stuff those folks are i'm talking about the trustworthy folks that just need to to you know, rate, you know, ratchet up their game, mm. and um, in order to to engender more trust, um, and I think that eventually, uh, once there are, it's an us them situation. I think that the more and more the trustworthy partners are going to be the ones that more and more people want to go to, like the New York Times or the Times of London or the Times of India, and then you have you have the rest of them that aren't so trustworthy, mm. and they're going to get. Uh, less less traffic now, but you're quite right, Peter. Then there are those that are the bad actors. Um, I would say that people like Fox News or maybe the Daily Mail might I, they're they're more entertainment oriented, really. And even you know that that actually is the pat answer from the lawyers at Fox News when people say, "How can Tucker Carlson spew all of these?" lies and the lawyers say well everybody knows it's not true it's just entertainment well of course they think it's true of course they do yeah i remember hearing that defense for the first time and going how can your defense of a news uh, an ostensibly news organization be oh it's not really news and everyone should be able to recognize that (laughs) it makes no sense to me and i've heard people say oh well this is no different to you know, the old days when you had to sell a newspaper, you had to put the most sensational story on the cover. Mm-hmm. You know, that was your selling point. But you didn't have to have the entire newspaper just being full of like, you know, the world, the world is burning sort of thing. <laughs> well, the world um, is burning, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's okay, a whole other but, right. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that is getting there. There's a lot of good news stories. There's a lot of people really trying to help each other in the world. And it just gets buried by this sort of tidal wave of, of garbage and i'm not saying you can't, like obviously you need to report on that but you need some balance as well and this is something nick newman um when he he did a he did a presentation about um his findings at um, a conference a couple of weeks ago and he he almost implored publishers he was like you, you just open up your front pages look at your front pages think about the effect that it's having on people it's not don't report on the big stories you know don't not report on the ukraine war but um Think about what you're balancing that with and think about if people come to your site and read that, is there anything else that can go away and just not feel quite so despairing? Because it's about it's about what can you do as well? Because if you read all this stuff and it's so, so negative, you just get to say, you're like, well, I can't do anything to change this apart from get angry. <laughs> so, Is this not what Sean Dagan Wood was trying to do with positive yeah. news, which was exactly. completely not from a sort of like, oh, let's bury our head in the sand and just report on the good stuff, but was actually doing it from a solutions-oriented sort of way? I think Sean Dagan Wood's got the 
per- perfect opportunity to, there to set up an agency <laughs> delivering yeah. positive content into these organizations because they probably don't know how to do it. Mm. I mean, let's face it, we, we do this podcast week in, week out. We struggle to find any positives. Peter, at the start of the episode, um, I said we live in an actual nightmare. Like, <laughs> like it's- yeah. In Denmark, there's the Positive News Institute. I don't know if, if that's the exact... Uh, Ulrich Hagrup is the person, the director, and uh, they're they're doing quite well, and it's very well received uh, information in a in a place in Denmark where they're big news readers and they're big, you know, engaged news le- readers. I think also um, something that I hear a lot of um, I'm I'm exposed to both you know heavy duty Democrats and heavy duty Republicans here in Florida. Uh, and and never the twain shall meet. I mean, <laughs> you know, this this country is full of either you're in or you're out. And yeah. it, but I I listen to both because it's in, it's very interesting to listen to to both sides. But what I hear from both of them, there is very little middle ground. But what I hear from both of them is this: Where can I go to just get the news? <laughs> right? It's yeah. so basic. Yeah. Right? It probably doesn't wouldn't make money. This is probably the reason why, you know, it's been tried, like CNN used to do headline news and it was just all news all the time, 24 hours a day. Well, it didn't make any money. But, but I think because people are so fatigued by all the negativity, all of the uh, misinformation, fake news and, um, and, and squishy, squishy facts, maybe, maybe we'll get to the point where there will be a website that, that, that will Give us all the news all the time with no bullshit. Say that so, more, can I? <laughs> yeah, Esther, you had something in the newsletter the other day that was that was kind of trying to strike a middle ground. What was that? Uh, it was. I was actually going to bring up exactly that because was um, there is uh, it's a US startup called One Four Four Zero. And there's also been Roka News this year, who have covered, mm. covered a couple of times on Media Voices, um, and both of them have seen that they're just they're quite small startups at the moment, but they've both seen huge, huge, huge audience growth because they they say that they're presenting neutral news, so it is just they say it's the facts. Um, you know, there's no sort of spin, there's no bias. They're like, this is a fact. You can then make up your mind about you know where you want to go with that. Um, and I I think there's probably a lot of publishers that say, oh, you know, we try to be neutral, but Every pretty much every single news brand in the UK you name, you can sort of you can pretty much put an, a, an angle on it. Like oh, they, yeah, they have a political leaning. When a story comes out, you know whether it's a Daily Mail story, an Economist story, you can pretty much pinpoint it. And they're kind of almost trying to go the other way with that and say, we're not going to give you any opinion. We're not going to give you any sort of real context. We're just going to give you the facts and you can then make up your mind. I was very, very skeptical when I spoke to Roka News about this. And I was like, there are some really, really difficult issues that like, you've got to take a side on, right? Mm. Um, and I follow them on Instagram, and actually, they do a really good job of just doing like five bullet points, and they say this is what's happened. You know, here's a bit of context, here's a bit of sort of what you know background to what's happened, and they don't try and put any political spin on it. It's really refreshing. I would say though that that was also the messaging around. Do you remember News Corp's aggregator News? <laughs> that was also their messaging. They said that they were going to be unbiased, and it clearly was not. Um, I think I'm, I'm biased and neutral. I think it's different. Okay. And in as much as anything can be completely objective, which you almost you never can be because you're always bringing your preconceptions in, mm. which again goes kind of to the heart of that issue. But one thing that I want to talk about here is how do you then 
go about establishing or re-establishing or re-upping trust with the public if you're a news organization? Is it radical transparency, as Stephanie mentioned on the Reuters podcast that we just did? How do you actually go about demonstrating that you are truly either you know neutral, accurate, and fair? How do you do that? Solve that problem for me, please. <laughs> yeah, Solve the trust crisis. Transparency for sure is a good place to start. And one of those, some, some media companies um, will actually open up their newsrooms. They will have um, regular meetings with with their readers in person. Um, or you know during COVID on on webinars um, they will have nights um, with the best writers to get people to get to know that they're human beings over here that that are are working um, uh, and I think also uh, to to bring them into the the meetings where decisions are made um, and you know, be completely transparent about um, their operations, because I think that there's a real myth in the minds of people who have no idea how news is made that, you know, all kinds of, you know, cons- conspiracy things happen in the decision making process. And then you yeah. know, the advertisers sit- are sitting there, too, and they're making their mark on, on the decision making and so on and so forth. They have no idea how it works. And we need to show them. I hate to bring semaphore up here, <laughs> but I'm going to bring semaphore up here. Um, it's one of the things, and, and it's not an innovative format. I've seen other publishers doing this, but they, um, in the first few paragraphs, they say, right, this is the kind of, this is the fact of the story. This is what's happened. And they then quite clearly label the analysis and the personal interpretation of it. Mm. And I think that clear, that clear labeling, I've seen, I've seen other publishers sort of say, you know, label things in similar ways where they're saying this is, this is the fact, this is a study we're reporting on, this is what's happened. And then they say, this is our expert opinion on it. And distinguishing between those two, I, th- I think really helps people when they're reading news say, okay, you know, I, c- I can take or leave the analysis on it, but I've got the information I need. Maybe I'm being a bit naive there. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't think so. Wait, am I misremembering or did I come up with this? Well, there was a new site that let the kind of just get the objective facts for free but then you paid for the analysis, the personal no, take on I think that. you just made that up. Have I solved I think you news? just solved the whole thing, yeah. <laughs> okay, perfect. All right, well, I'm trademarking that. Well, well, what you could do with that one is let people pay for the right-wing whack job analysis and let people pay for the left-wing whack job analysis so you yeah. could get both sides of the market. What we really want to do is corner the whack job market, you're right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Those many- are the ones, yeah. So this this all kind of plays into my sort of top media moment, if it is a moment, um, for 2022. And Damien Radcliffe, friend of the podcast. We need t-shirts. <laughs> we do. Damien, friend of the podcast t-shirts. Uh, his coverage of, the, of the, the Reuters Digital News Report, which, you know, the report itself, read it, but if you can't, if you haven't got the time, Damien's coverage is always brilliant. And the coverage he did for DCN, um, he focused on one part on the solutions that the report had suggested, specifically for tackling news avoidance, but tying that very much to trust. So it was about making news accessible for ordinary people, not just news junkies. So that's about 
giving more context, less acronyms, answering questions, just what Martha was talking about, making the reports human, highlighting opinion, what Esther was saying at Semaphore is doing, and also mixing up formats and styles and that idea that we've got explainers here that underlie what we're doing on the actual reporting. And then we've got these commentary pieces, a bit like the BBC does. Ross Atkins. Yeah, 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 Ross Atkins. That kind of, so mixing stuff up, giving people different ways in. For me, so my moment was meeting Katie Vanek Smith in Portugal <laughs> at the FIP Congress, and she talked about what Tortoise was doing with the audio. And so, you know, they, they had these long form written pieces, and they realized that people weren't spending the length of time with them that it would take to read them. But audio, they were spending time. And she described that as a spinach and cheesecake idea. <laughs> So much spinach in terms of a really heavy, really dark commentary or whatever. And then the cheesecake stuff was giving people a different way in and making it a bit lighter. Um, so I think that that for me is really what publishers can do about it. I don't think publishers can answer this problem. I think it's an education problem that goes should start in primary school and go all the way through to seniors clubs in terms of media literacy. That's a massive, massive problem. By the time you set the curriculum, it'll be out of date. <laughs> I thought the cheesecake was what the sun used to do on page three. Oh, uh, <laughs> two words for you, Chris. <laughs> Breasts. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, you know, just tying into that is this whole thing of less than seasonalism. Yeah. Uh, you know, that last week we saw that thing from the mail. Oh, the that was mail brilliant. Week. Sir Michael Take. <laughs> Yeah, reporting on this parody account as if it was fact, just to yeah. just to support their point. Esther, you have a different take on the media moment for this year, don't you? Oh uh, yeah, sorry, mine's mine's not cheerful again. Um, <laughs> no, I don't uh, know what's uh, happening with you, Esther. <laughs> it's all this news avoidance, Peter. It's, it's what happens when you hit your thirties; it all goes downhill. <laughs> yeah, everyone else in the podcast winced. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my media moment is that um, that. And this is, shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, but TikTok, shockingly, is growing in popularity for news um, and is a massive ticking time bomb for misinformation. Uh, I know the US has got the midterms coming up literally in a matter of days. Goodness mm. knows what's going to come out after that. Um, but it, it's just it's just a complete Wild West. Uh, people that have done research have found that over 20% of videos that come up when searching for popular news stories are, are, are like proper misinformation. That seems low. Um, and I think the... Well, <laughs> um, I think the risk here particularly is that young people are at particular risk for believing a lot of this stuff, um, the misinformation and proven conspiracies. Um, they are, according to this report, they are naturally quite sceptical about mainstream organisations and are much more vulnerable to manipulation from people like Russell Brand. <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, and, yeah, people that they follow on TikTok, if they suddenly start saying something um, there's no sort of linking out and TikTok doesn't allow you to really go off the site. So you can't take a moment to go and check what somebody mm. said is true. It's very much like you internalize it, you keep scrolling and it just becomes an embedded issue. So TikTok is still a very, very, very new platform. And I know there's tons and tons of research on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and all the rest, but I, I think we're going to look back in a couple of years and wonder why the hell we were so blind mm. to all this because it's it's a real, real problem. Martha, did the FCC just recommend that tiktok be banned oh i think that there there have been gestures to do that um for for quite some time now trump um, was actually gonna ban it once wasn't good, he and for good reason i think mm. um so i i feel like this unfettered collection of data from people from you know cradle to grave potentially is is really um 
problematic and parents need to police it. But I'll tell you, you know, if, if back in the day when my children were on MySpace, you may not remember yeah. that, but that's uh, how old I am. My band had um, many tens of listens on MySpace, Martha. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in those days, no one knew that predators were on that site because they didn't even know what MySpace was then. Mm. And this is, this is, this is a, a fairly new um, platform Potentially, the potential for AI and data um, uh, disaster mm. is looming with that particular um, platform. Well, just before we come to you for that media moment, I just wanted to do mine because it follows on from Esther's point about TikTok. So a recent Pew Research Center survey found that half of 18 to 29-year-olds in the U.S. say that they have some or a lot of trust in the information they get from social media sites. And that's just under the 56% who say the same about information from national news organizations. I've heard both sides of this quite regularly. Different studies have varying stats on how many people trust social media and the news they get on there. But it's it's interesting that, again, the only consistent outlier is that people trust their local news organizations. And I don't know whether that's because they're visible, as we've seen with kind of the success of the Manchester Mill here in the UK, mm-hmm. if it's the fact that journalists are embedded in communities and therefore you can actually see the people who are going out and doing that journalistic work. It remains consistent that local news organizations really, really outperform. But Martha, you were talking that you wanted to talk about data and AI and what actually that might mean for trust. Yeah, I, I do think that this is an opportunity. And um, on one hand, if, if done right, it's also an opportunity for disaster if, if done wrong. Um, and also already, Thomson Reuters showed us what not to do, uh, not to have the most secure um, you know, data uh, center you can possibly have um, that something like that should have never happened. Mm. And um, that could happen, you know, media companies of all kinds have all kinds of data and, and there is potential for leakage from, from any um, media company. So I think that, 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 that area needs to be really taken seriously because uh you know, the same adage from way back in the day is still relevant today, which is it is really hard to fix something that's already that's the cat's already out of the bag. You know, the, these all of these things play into somebody's mind about, oh, I can't trust them. They can't even get get my name right um, or um, something much, much more serious. You mentioned there about sort of having to be completely watertight. And do you remember it was earlier, I think, well, last month only when The Wire had to come out and say, you know what, we got our reporting wrong about Meta in quite a significant way. And that has obviously had an impact on the number of people who will trust their reporting in the future. Yeah, we've unfortunately, we've sort of come to the end of the discussion. We could have spoken about every aspect of trust there for about four hours because it's something that is the bedrock upon which journalism businesses are based. Uh, but unfortunately, we have come to the end of that. So, Martha, thank you so much for taking the time to come and have this chat. If people if people want to find you, where's the best place for them to reach out to you? Um, e- email is good. Um, mwilliams at wnmn.org. Thanks to Membership and Subscription Suite Pool for sponsoring this season of the Media Voices podcast and our upcoming Media Moments 2020. Report. And don't forget, you can pre-register to download the Media Moments 2022 report by going to voices.media/mm22. 
And make sure that you come back next week when we're going to be doing another in-depth deep dive into one of the topics that we have in our upcoming Media Moments 2022 report. Let me just read you a couple of Jerry Springer episode titles. <laughs> uh, porn Star Surprise, here we go. I Want My Pants Back, Straight to Gay in a Week. <laughs> Zach the 70 Pound Baby. <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> but, now, but shady experiences um, but for now thank you so much for listening to this episode of Media Voices and goodbye <laughs> oh, I want to know more about Thanks, this baby it was fun <laughs>